This is After School on Core 77. I'm Don Lehman. We're entering a news window where most of the major stories will revolve around sports. Last night we had the Super Bowl, and this Thursday is the start of the Winter Olympics in Russia. Designers are notoriously uninterested in sports, and I know this because I'm generally the only one of my design friends intently watching a game. But today, I'm going to try to help anyone who carries only a passing or even non-existent interest in sports by finding something else to focus on, the aesthetics, specifically the design of uniforms. To help me with this, we have, and this is not an exaggeration, the world's leading expert on sports uniform design, Paul Lucas. Paul is a journalist who has been following the nuances of sports aesthetics, probably since he was a kid, and then started actively documenting them in 1999 from New York indie newspaper, The Village Voice. Today, he is the editor of one of my absolute favorite websites, UniWatch, as well as a contributor to ESPN.com. Stay tuned. So we're recording this uh, Friday before the Super Bowl, so if anything noteworthy happens during the game, we're obviously going to miss it. Uh, but you're somewhat famous amongst your readership for making some fancy meat-based entree for the holidays, and the Super Bowl is sort of an American <laughs> holiday, so I'm wondering if uh, you're doing anything for a party you're going to this weekend. Uh, actually, uh, I'm doing very little in that regard. Uh, I'm watching with a few friends, and... Um, we didn't want to make it uh, too big of a production, and my girlfriend uh, is making a lasagna, which I think is probably not a very traditional <laughs> Super no. Bowl uh, food, but uh, that's what it's going to be. Yeah, cool. Uh, so what's interesting from a design perspective about this game is that both the the Broncos and Seahawks have sort of these my, modern milestones for uh, football uniforms. Yeah. And the Broncos were the first to kind of break the mold for uniform construction and design back in 96 and Seattle's kind of the more recent addition. And I'm so I'm wondering what stands out about these uniforms for you. Um it was actually 97 uh when the Broncos oh, okay. uh, began wearing uh, their current design. Uh and it was at the time um both a revelation and a revolution uh in football uniform design on on a lot of different levels. First, uh, that that uniform, which they continue to wear, um, you know, 16, 17 years later, was designed by Nike. Not just made by Nike, but designed by Nike. And nowadays, that wouldn't be such an unusual thing. Sportswear companies like Nike and Reebok and Under Armour uh, typically come up with designs that they then propose to teams or approach the teams uh, with, and the teams then, you know, consult and uh, either approve or reject or whatever. Uh, but at the time, back in the in the late 90s, teams and leagues generally came up with their own designs uh, through the use of outside designers, just like any designer who gets hired by a client, uh, and then would go to a company like Nike or Reebok and say, Here, here's our design, here's our specs, you execute this. Uh, and that's the way it was in sports for decades, for generations. Uh, and Nike was in the process of changing that in the late 90s, and that Broncos uniform 
was the first example of a major professional sports team using a uniform that had been created by the uniform outfitter. And so that in and of itself changed the relationship and the way that teams did business regarding their uniforms. Um, the, then aesthetically, that uniform was also uh, a game changer. It looked nothing like any uh, other uniform that had been worn in the National Football League. It had um, these uh, brightly colored side panels and, and these sort of um, horns that, <laughs> that came up uh, in the collarbone area. Uh, and what Nike was doing there, they were showing that they had added, they had changed the tailoring template of the jersey and the pants. They had added stretch panels and changed where the seams were. And every place there was a new seam, they decided to show that off by changing the color of each panel that they put in. So if there was a new stretch panel, um, they would put that in a tr contrasting color, and that ended up changing the look of the jersey significantly. And at the time, there was a lot of thought, well, is this the future direction of, of pro football uniform design? And actually, it has not really turned out to be. There is still nothing else in the National Football League that looks like that Broncos uniform, although that template, that ta uh, tailoring template and, and future generations of that template have become extremely common in college football. And so it sort of trickled down to the college ranks. The NFL, pro football, still... Um, has a more traditional look uh, to most of its uniforms. So that's the Broncos uniform. It was it was sort of the uh, Nike kind of planting a flag in the ground and saying, this is what uh, our design sensibility is going to be like going forward. Uh, shortly after that, a few years after that, uh, in 2000 or 2001, uh, Reebok got the uh, uniform contract for the NFL uh, and made all the NFL teams' uniforms for the next decade um, through 2011. And then in 2012, uh, that contract came to an end and Nike bid and received the new NFL contract. And now they are making all the NFL teams uniforms. Uh, so the Broncos had that uniform designed by Nike and they kept wearing it, even though it was being manufactured by Reebok through the 2000s. Uh, and they're still wearing it now. But when Nike got the NFL contract back, they wanted a signature, design, a sort of uh, a way to say, hey, we're back, um, we're working with the NFL again, and this is what we're about. And the team that let them do that, the team that said, yeah, give us a, a serious makeover, was Seattle, the Seattle Seahawks. And so for the 2012 season, Seattle got a fairly serious makeover, not as serious as the one the Broncos got in, in 1997. Um, the, the Seahawks pretty much kept their basic logo, their helmet logo, their helmet design, and their team colors. But um, the way, like the graphic template of, the, of their jersey was significantly changed in a way that hadn't been seen on an NFL jersey before. Um, their secondary color, which is a bright neon green, um, which had been used very sparingly as a trim color, got a more prominent, uh, got more prominent play in the uniform. Uh, and it's a very loud color, and when you increase its presence on the uniform, you get a louder uniform. Uh, and so this Super Bowl, we have uh, one of Nike's first game-changing uniform designs with uh, one of their more recent game-changing designs. Uh, the, the subsequent season uh, in 2013, the season that's concluding now, uh, Nike came out with an even more kind of out-there design for the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, although that team isn't very good. So, yeah. so not many people have paid attention to what they're wearing. They're certainly not in the Super Bowl. Right, 
Right. And what's interesting about, uh, I guess, the Broncos uniform now is that they're they're sort of using the same template the Seahawks are because the Nike's got the sort of standardized, what they call pro combat template that a lot of the well, teams well, all right. have. I'm going to interrupt for a couple of things because you're wandering into dangerous rhetorical territory there. Yeah. First, um, the Seahawks do, do not have the same template as the Broncos. Um, the Broncos use stretch panels in areas that the Seahawks don't. Um, the, uh, like the, the, the pointy, curvy uh, stripes on the Broncos' pants, uh, that's a tailoring template that the Seahawks do not use. Um, and the, the jersey construction is different for the two teams as well. Also, the what you refer to as the uh, pro combat uh, template that is not something that is being used in the NFL. That is a term used only for Nike's uh, college uniforms. Uh, it refers to a certain uh, design scheme that they use, uh, and it's really more of a marketing term. Uh, and it is not being used in the NFL. Okay. The NFL jerseys, I believe, are the something like Elite Fifty One or some, something. Sure. Something else, but it is uh, the it is not the pro combat uh, uh, line of of product. Right, right, and and when they kind of switched to this, I mean, they kind of took some of those elements from the, that college pro combat and kind of transferred it over to the NFL. And each team has sort of adapted it the way they want to. Patriots have kind of, and the Raiders have completely ignored it. They kind of still do their own thing. The Broncos have some of that, uh, specifically in the collar. And I wonder, you know, like that uniform, the original uniform was so designed, you know, that construction was designed for a specific thing. I wonder, like, it seems like Nike does a lot of things now where they, uh, they shoehorn a design into a template. Um, that is absolutely true. Uh, and, and when Nike took over uh, or reclaimed the, the NFL uniform contract in, in 2012, every team was basically given a, a set of mix and match options. Um, of what Nike refers to as innovations. Um, in other words, you can use this collar style, this innovative collar style, or this jersey template, or um, this fabrication uh, of uh, textiles, um, and they refer to all of these as innovations. Um, or you can use only some of them, or you can use none of them. A few teams uh, have used none of them. Uh, the Green Bay Packers, um, the Philadelphia Eagles and a few other teams are still using the exact same specs they were using uh, under Reebok, not just in terms of the, what we see visually, um, but the tailoring template, the fabrics, everything. They're using exactly the same thing. It's just manufactured by Nike now instead of being manufactured by Reebok. Other teams did choose some of those elements and some teams chose all of them. And as you say, uh, in some cases, the, the translation of taking an existing graphic design and putting it into, um, a, a, or shoehorning it, as you said, into uh, a new construction template, tailoring template, manufacturing template, uh, sometimes causes problems. Uh, a great example of this, is, and it's not just a Nike problem, it, it happened under Reebok as well, um, would be the Indianapolis Colts. Um, the Colts, going back to their days in Baltimore, have had largely the same uniform. And part of that uniform used to be that there were these stripes that ran across the shoulders and looped down under the armpits. And because of the way football jerseys are constructed now, there are seams, several sets of seams, that sort of get in the way of those stripes. And so the stripes no longer continue down under the armpits. They, they now just sort of sit atop the shoulders 
and don't loop down anymore. And they've gotten over the years sort of more and more truncated. They they got shorter and then shorter and then shorter, and and now they're almost vestigial. And uh, that's a case of um, I guess you could say form following function, right? Because uh, the the most important aspect of of the jersey is that it's functional and that it uh, allows the athlete to perform uh, at optimum performance and blah blah blah. And and sometimes uh, given that uh, certain designs that worked with earlier uh, tailoring templates don't work anymore, but teams cling to them anyway. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of what we see is, is a, an example of a form following function and, and designers love to talk about form following function, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder what your opinion is, uh, your personal opinion of, of these two, uh, uniforms, both the, the Broncos and the Seahawks are definitely more progressive in their design than the rest of the league. And I wonder what your thoughts are on, on just the way they look. Uh, I'm frankly not a fan of either uh, uniform set. Uh, I think this is going to be one of the worst-looking Super Bowls ever. <laughs> uh, I, I've never been a fan of the Broncos' uh, design uh, ever since it was uh, uh, debuted back in, in the late 90s. Yeah. Uh, I still it's, don't like it. I do yeah. like the helmet. I think um, you know it's a, it's a good-looking helmet design, and, and every football uniform starts with the helmet. But uh, I hate the, the swooping uh, pointed stripes uh, that come up in the collarbone area and then down the pants. Yeah, I it's gotten the, worse with the, the, the collar from that template. That, uh, they have a very thick collar now that looks really awkward and unwieldy. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm just not, not a fan of, of that design, never have been. Yeah. Uh, the Seahawks, um, I, I really don't like that. Uh, neon green trim that I referred to earlier, and that, that it has a larger presence now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do. I will say that the uniform they're wearing in the Super Bowl, the combination they're wearing of a white jersey and the their navy pants, is probably their best combination. Uh, better than the navy over navy that they always wear at home, which is sometimes referred to as the scuba suit because it's just um, you know dark over dark. Um, uh, or the white on white that they more often wear on the road, but for this game in the Super Bowl, they've, tried, they've chosen to wear the white over the navy, and that contrast I do think is their best combination. But still, all that neon green—it's um, not just on the, the side striping of the pants, where it's very prominent, but uh, players wear it for a lot of their accessories, including their shoes, their shoelaces, their gloves, and you see a lot of this. Uh, this really loud color that uh, I've just never cared for. Uh, sure. it, it just, to me, doesn't work uh, as a sports color. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, we're also a couple years into the NFL having standardized the logo for the Super Bowl. Uh, yeah. And, it, and it's it's this, you know, silvery illustration of the Lombardi Trophy in front of uh, the stadium that the game is being played at that year. Although, right. This is, this is sometimes referred to as the Landor template because it was come up with uh, or devised by Landor Associates, the famous uh, brand design firm. They're the ones uh, who designed that. And, of course, prior to that, um, each Super Bowl had its own very distinct logo. Yeah, and it was something that I sort of, you know, something I looked forward to in a weird way every year, just Mm kind of see how they're going to do it this year. It's sort of in the same way the Olympics, you know, has a different logo for every Olympic, and it kind of gives Mm -hmm. each game its own little flavor. And if you look over the history of the logos, you can kind of start to see somewhat of a design aesthetic history, you know, eras and decades passing, you know, through these logos. Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, now that we've seen this logo for a couple of years now, it's a sort of standard thing. You know, what are your impressions of it? Have they changed at all or are they the same as when you first saw it? 
I don't really care for it uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, just having it be the same each year, as, as you said, sort of diminishes any element of surprise or delight uh, at getting a new logo. Um, secondly, it reinforce having the same logo year after year reinforces the notion of the Super Bowl as a sort of corporate event, which I know it is, but it that kind of diminishes its status to me, at least as an athletic event. Um, third, the the uh, centerpiece of the design is the Lombardi Trophy, and I understand that every league wants to make its championship trophy, you know, it wants to impart as much aura and majesty and all of that. But, you know, in the world of pro sports, there's one trophy that, that has this backstory and, and is really the trophy to beat all other trophies, and that's the Stanley Cup mm-hmm. in hockey. And, you know, you can, you can win the Super Bowl and you can be the world champion. Football is the most popular sport. But to suggest that the Lombardi Trophy in and of itself as an object has some kind of has the same kind of status as something like the Stanley Cup. And by putting it in a logo like that is, you know, to imply that I think is, is, is just pushing it. It seems disingenuous to me. I don't think people care about the Lombardi trophy the same way they yeah. care about some, some other trophies. Yeah. So we should all... say that the Stanley cup, I, you know, I th- a lot of people listening to us are, are not huge sports fans. So maybe we should just explain a little bit, but basically it's a, you know, a old silver cup that they've been giving out in the NHL for decades and decades. And they add, each team to the trophy uh, every time that they win with the players' names on it. So it's got all this yeah, history. Yeah, they engrave each player from the, the with the championship team onto the cup, and they keep adding sections to the cup. Right, so it gets uh, bigger. To accommodate, or... all the, the, to accommodate all those players' names. Yeah. Uh, and there's, and there's, it has a, the Stanley Cup is like a century old, and it has all this story and history behind it. Uh, so to, to have a logo that centers on the Lombardi trophy uh, has never really worked for me. Uh, but I think the bigger problem, aside from the logo's design, is, as you say, just the, it's the sense of a, an essentially static logo, you know, that, where nothing changes in the logo except the Roman numeral uh, denoting what number of Super Bowl this is. And that's going to be an interesting thing coming up in two years. Now, they've already shown what the logo for the next Super Bowl, Super Bowl 49, which will take place a year from now, um, I believe in Phoenix, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has the same basic template that we've been seeing uh, that, that Landor created, and it has the Roman numeral 49. But what are they going to do the year after that for the Super Bowl in 2016, which will be the 50th Super Bowl, and the Roman numeral for 50 is L. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have that same kind like, I don't think people, many people don't know that the Roman numeral for 50 is L. It doesn't have that same kind of oomph. L is for loser. You know, in the sports world, L is not a good, a good initial. Right. And I, I can't believe they're going to stick with the, the Roman numerals. And I assume they're going to go back, or not back, but they're going to switch to Arabic numerals, which they've never used for the Super Bowl before. And it will be, you know, a 5-0. And are they going to incorporate that into the logo? Will they? Will that change the the logo template in some way? Will they then, after the 50th one, will they stick with Arabic numerals or go back to Roman numerals? Uh, you know, L I L I I, etc. So they they've got uh, some decisions to make, and I'm sure those decisions already have been made. But we're just not privy to them yet. But I'm sure that um, that groundwork has all been laid already. Yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting is this year is they seem to be wandering from a standardized template a little bit, even though it's still the most prominent one. I, you know, especially around New York, we see this 
version of a Super Bowl logo, which is sort of like a Broadway influenced, like very kind of chrome uh, lines looking one. I don't know if you've seen this around. And in New York, New Jersey, the host committee also has their own sort of logo. So I'm wondering, yeah. Yeah, the host, the host committee each year um, it, it, for every Super Bowl has um, its own separate logo. That That's not a new thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one player in this game, uh, Wes Welker, who's a, a wide receiver for the Broncos, has a pretty long history of concussions. Mm-hmm. And just within the past couple of games, he's changed his helmet that he was wearing. He's got a slightly larger size now uh, mm-hmm. with more padding. And that's presumably to cushion the impact of a helmet-to-helmet hit. And I'm wondering, you know, just from your study of all this, you know, kind of what's the state of the art in concussion prevention? And do you think it's possible to design a helmet that will prevent concussions? I've talked with a lot of people about this, and it's very obvious uh, and apparent. uh, And, you know, people on both sides of the concussion debate, and when I say both sides, there are people who want to ban football, and there are people who... Uh, you know, they want to ban it because it's a, a public health hazard, or there are people who are totally into football and they just want to make it as safe as possible going forward. But what everybody agrees is that there is no such thing as a concussion-proof helmet, uh, and so uh, or an anti-concussion helmet. All you can do is is help protect uh, the players uh, as best you can. Uh, Wes Welker missed several games toward the end of the season uh, after being concussed and came back, uh, as you said, wearing. Um, a somewhat larger helmet. It actually looked a bit bigger than it was for a, a few reasons. Um, he wears—he is a fairly slight receiver. Uh, he's not a, a big man, and he wears extremely small uh, shoulder pads. Uh, so his profile, his horizontal profile, doesn't actually. His stance doesn't look as uh, as broad as as that of many other players. And so the helmet, uh, which was slightly bigger, um, actually had the effect of looking even bigger than it was. Um, he, uh, he's wearing a standard stock helmet. It's, it's made by Riddell, the, the leading helmet manufacturer. It's not something special that was geared up for him. It, it's not, it doesn't have any extra padding or, um, it's not a custom model or anything like that. It's a stock model. It is one size larger than what he was wearing before. Um, but it's the same model that several of his teammates wear. Uh, and, you know, we're going to certainly be seeing a lot of debate on, on this topic, uh, and, and lots of new helmet designs. Uh, that are going to try to uh, mitigate against the problem of concussions. You hear a lot of people saying, you know, it would be better if they went back to the old leather helmets because uh, in those uh, in the earlier days of pro football, players couldn't um, use their heads as weapons because the helmets weren't as good. Uh, and so if you had to worry about a skull fracture or, you know, some other sort of damage, you wouldn't leave with your head the way so many players do now. Um, I think there's a lot of conflicting evidence on that point, but it, it's certainly an issue. And, uh, you know, players are so much bigger and faster and stronger now, and they work out all year long, not just during the season. And uh, modern training, modern nutrition, uh, modern performance-enhancing drugs, if you believe that players are taking them, um, all of these have co- combined to make uh, players just, there's just so much more momentum uh, in terms of the mass and the speed at which that mass is, is traveling on the field that, yeah, there's going to be, um, uh, I think we're going <laughs> we're gonna to see a lot more concussions and we're going to hear a lot more debate about concussions. Yeah. Have you seen any research that shows any, you know, different methods work more effectively than others for, uh, for some of this prevention? I mean, the NFL has gone to this, this level this year of saying that the team, you know, the player has to wear the same helmet throughout the season. 
mm-hmm. and and that's supposed to help. But then you see the college uh, athletes that play football there changing helmets every game. <laughs> so right, you know, I'm right. like, I'm, and it seems like there's a lot of pseudoscience around a lot of this stuff. I don't know if there's anything that has been shown to be even a 10 percent in uh, reduction in concussions. No, and I think also you have to realize that the, the issue isn't necessarily concussions per se. The issue is chronic brain disease, yeah. uh, which many players have ended up with. And concussions are sort of a symptom or a, like the canary in the coal mine saying, you know, you're damaging your brain here. And, and what the, the scarier thing is that what more and more research is showing is that it's not just concussive impacts that lead to this brain disease, but the accumulation of much smaller sub-concussive impacts. Uh, over time, and that so so that even if you did eliminate concussions, even if you could, which everyone seems to agree that you can't, but even if you could, um, that that wouldn't necessarily solve or mitigate the problem of chronic brain disease. And so that's really the bigger issue that um, that is I, I think a lot of parents are concerned about. And that's where we're going to see. Uh, how this debate is playing out. It, it's not going to be you know, played out in newspaper articles or on the web or whatever. It's going to be played out in the enrollment figures for youth football and ha- whether parents allow their children uh, to play this game as they continue to hear uh, and, and see uh, evidence of, of what football may do. And uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out over the next generation. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, UniWatch and 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 how you kind of started it and got into it. You know, how did you get into it? Uh, I spent much of the '90s. Uh, well, let me back up. Uh, for those who don't know, UniWatch is uh, uh, a column. The name of a column that I write for ESPN.com, where I write about uniform and logo design, and it's also the name of a blog that I, a daily blog that I write um, that supplements my ESPN work. UniWatch started as a column in 1999. I had spent uh, much of the 90s writing about uh, very small details of design as it related to consumer culture. And so that meant brand design, package design, industrial design, uh, all relating to consumer culture. And I was a big sports fan, and it started occurring to me that I could apply that same very detail-oriented approach uh, and filter and apply it to sports. Uh, and my, I had a girlfriend at the time who also was getting kind of tired of me pointing at our TV every time we watched a baseball game. And I'd be saying, look how this guy's sleeves are longer than that guy's sleeves or, or whatever. And, or look at this guy's socks. They're like totally different than like anybody else on the field. And she'd be saying, you know, Paul, I think maybe you need an outlet for this. (laughs) And so so I thought, oh, maybe I could write an article. Maybe I could write a couple. Maybe I could write a column. And there really wasn't anything like that around at the time. And I had been doing this design writing, and I'd been writing for a fair number of design magazines. And I could have approached design magazines and said, I want to do a design column that's about sports. But... I thought it would be much more interesting to make it a sports column that was about design, to have it be a legitimate sports beat and approach a sports editor, not a design editor, uh, with the idea. And so uh, at first I went to ESPN Magazine, which was new at the time, uh, and also um, Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated was interested, and I actually did a few pieces for them, and they paid me for them, but they didn't run them. They bumped them, and I could see that um, UniWatch wasn't going to be a priority for them. So. 
I set my sights a little lower and went to the Village Voice, which is a free alternative weekly here in New York City where I live. Uh, and at the time, they had a sports section. They don't anymore, but they did then. And it was for its time, a really innovative sports section. Uh, there's all sorts of things that are done on blogs now that we take for granted, but at, at the time, in 1999, the voice sports section had, for example, a column devoted exclusively to hockey fights, just the, like the fights that take place in hockey games, and that was sort of transgressive or unusual or eccentric or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so they were good I thought they'd be a good fit for uh, a column about uniform design and, and they got it right away and their editor, their sports editor said, sure, do it. Uh, and so that's how UniWatch was born first as a monthly column. And the editor at the time, he said, is there really enough to write about once a month about yeah. uniforms? And I, <laughs> and I wasn't really sure myself. And I said, I think so, you know, let, right. let's see. Uh, and now of course I write about uniforms literally every day. And, and you write a lot about it every day. I mean, it's not like, you know, uh, you know, a couple of blurbs. It's like you have, you know, a par paragraphs and paragraphs of stuff you can go on about. It's amazing. Uh, well, part of that is that I have an amazing readership. And while I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm getting emails um, from my readers who've seen things or heard things or spotted things or whatever. And so they're my eyes and ears out there. And the the ter the the, uh, the project the the project of UniWatch has essentially become crowdsourced, and so I'm I'm really fortunate to have such great readers who uh, submit things. And you know I have a pretty good eye; I spot things myself too. But uh, it's such a better project uh, because I can only watch so many games or see so many things. And uh, fortunately, my readers keep me up to speed on all the other stuff that I can't see. Yeah, were you surprised there was many other people who were interested in this level of detail as, as you? Um, a little bit, but not completely. When I had been doing um, the consumer culture writing that I described earlier, uh, I would often hear from people who said, um, oh, I'm, I'm really glad I discovered your work. I thought I was the only one who looked at the world this way. And, and that's what's happened with UniWatch. I still get, uh, not as often as I used to, but I still hear from people who say, I just discovered UniWatch. Thank God I thought I was the only one. Yeah. And, you know, my wife makes fun of me or my friends roll their eyes when I point out these little uniform details and, and uh, nobody understands. And, and now I've discovered UniWatch and the UniWatch community. And, and now, you know, thank God I've, I've discovered that. And so it is, it's kind of nice and, uh, to hear that kind of response. And not everybody gets it. You, you know, I'll also encounter people who come across my work and say, this is stupid, who cares what the players are wearing, you know, just what's the score of the game, that's all I care about. And that's fine. You know, it's right. not for, UniWatch isn't for everyone, but it's for enough people. And the people who do care about it, care about it a lot like a lot. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess the lesson is uh, never underestimate the power and the passion of sports geekitude. UniWatch is, is a very uh, sort of niche geek project. Yeah, yeah. Well, and especially for fans like, you know, myself, I'm a huge Bills fan. And for basically the past, you know, decade or so, I've just been cheering for laundry. And it's like, this is the only thing that's, that's consistent from year to year that you can really overanalyze if the team is not great and you know it gets under your skin it's like well at least can i watch something that looks nice you know mm -hmm. like aesthetically it's, if the team's gonna suck can i at least watch a game that uh you know they they look like they're a professional team 
I think um, most of us have had the experience, um, maybe especially when we were younger uh, and watching sports for the first time, of looking at a game and not really knowing much about either team, um, you know, because maybe it's a national game and neither team is local, and or, or we're just young and we don't know anything about sports yet, uh, and we don't know much about the teams, and we just think, well, that one looks nicer. I'm going to root for them. And, and I think we don't always realize we're doing that. It, it's almost on a supplemental level, but I think it's a fairly natural response that many people have engaged in. Um, and you, you mentioned rooting for laundry, and of course that's a line from Seinfeld when Jerry Seinfeld said that uh, team loyalty is essentially rooting for laundry, meaning the uniform. And that's, that's one thing I've really learned uh, from UniWatch is the power of a uniform. Um, in the 90s when I was writing about consumer culture, I, I learned a lot and wrote a lot about brand design and brand loyalty. But of course, with brand loyalty, like let's say I like Cheerios, which in fact I do. Uh, and that means that when I see the Cheerios package, the box, you know, the yellow box and the logo and all that, there's like some little neurons fire in my brain and, and say, hey, that's familiar and that's mine and, and I relate to that and we have a relationship and that goes back decades and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's all nice. But it, I also actually like the taste of Cheerios. And if the taste changed, if the quality of the product changed, like if I had one box of Cheerios that was really lousy, that my relationship might be strong enough, my, my brand loyalty might be strong enough to go back and buy one more box just to see, you know, maybe that was just one bad box. But if the second box was bad, well, there's only so far my loyalty is going to go. I'm not going to keep engaging with the product if, if I don't like the quality of the product. Right. But, in, but in sports, the content of the product and the quality of that content, by which I mean the players, that's changing all the time because players get traded they retire, they get injured, they leave via free agency. So your roster turns over constantly. And so your team can be very good one year and very bad the next year. But if you're a true fan, you keep rooting for whoever wears that uniform, even though you know they may not be very good or they're different than the people who were wearing the uniform last time. That is, I mean, you can say, oh, they're rooting for laundry. But beneath that little quip, is essentially the most powerful form of brand loyalty that I'm aware of on our consumer landscape. There's nothing else like it because the quality of the product can be so bad and sometimes it can be bad for years and years, but the people stay loyal, the consumers, by which I mean the fans, stay loyal to that brand, by which I mean the team. And there's nothing else like that. It is an unusually powerful form of brand loyalty, and, and that's part of what makes writing about uniforms so fascinating. Yeah. You've, you've been doing this long enough now and in such a consistently high level that anytime anyone in the media needs to talk to someone about uniforms, they talk to you. And so I wonder... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's every time, but I, I do get a lot of inquiries uh, yeah. from, from people who, who are writing their one article a year or you know, for magazines who are doing their, their one article a year about uniforms. Uh, and so, yeah, they call the guy who writes about uniforms every day, and that would be me. <laughs> right. So what's, uh, it, what's it like being the world's leading critic on, on sports aesthetics? Um, honestly, I wish there were others out there. I wish there were, and I'm a little surprised that I'm still at this point, the only full-time journalist. Um, there, there are, blo there's a blogger or two who, who do it on a full-time basis, but in terms of like my work for ESPN, no other sports outlet, sports media outlet like Yahoo sports or SportsIllustrated.com or any of the other places, nobody else has a full-time uniform writer. And I'm a little surprised by that. And 
frankly, I'm a little disappointed by it because I think if the other media outlets had counterparts to me, um, number one, that would be some healthy competition for me and keep me on my toes and all of that, and that would be good. But also, I think it would help to legitimize the beat uh, because I do still, even after all these years, face uh, sometimes face a little bit of uh, marginalization or condescension when I call someone, like whether I call a team or a league, uh, to interview or get a quote uh, regarding something about uniforms. And there's this undercurrent of, oh, it's just about uniforms. Well, that's not that important, right. you know. Uh, Which is uh, crazy and, in the light of what I think what you just hit on was really important. Was that this, you know, these can be our connections to these brands, and it's in some cases, might be the most important part of a team if the team right, right. is and not great. Right, and it's good business, too, because people are buying you know, right. these jerseys and caps right. and whatnot. Uh, and, but I do face that sometimes where people, you know, there's, like, as I said, not everybody gets it. Not, not everybody cares. And sometimes I call someone to ask a question, and they're one of the people who don't care. And they see it as this, uh, this little niche thing that isn't to be taken seriously or not as seriously as other aspects of sports. And so I think if, if there were other full-time uniform journalists that would help to legitimize the whole notion of writing about uh, uniforms. And so I, I wish uh, there were uh, counterparts to me out there. Um, uh, but uh, it is uh, the flip side to that is that I guess it is nice to be the go-to guy for something like this. And, uh, and I am happy and pleased of, uh, at having developed and created this beat. Um, but I'd like to see more things happen with it you know, by other people. Yeah, you know, I I wonder um, because you're kind of the the only person doing this. Have you, have you found that by having your taste and expressing your opinions on some of these things, um, and you do it at such a professional level, do you wonder about influencing the way other people think, or even the way uh, you know some of these designers who who work on this stuff think? Um, I certainly influence, I guess, the way some of my readers think, and that's what any uh, critic wants to do, right? You want to encourage the good and discourage the bad as you see those terms uh, and and, uh, influence how your readers think. And and I'm not trying to brainwash anybody or anything like that, but I I am trying to impart a point of view. Uh, And and I think every critic uh, of any stripe, you know, believes uh, at some level that that he or she is is right, that their tastes are are right. Uh, And um, but I would say I don't think I've had much of an effect on the larger aesthetics of the uniform world, given a lot of what we see out there, um, most of which uh, in terms of recent uniform developments I'm not a big fan of. And I think um, the fact that uniforms are are a big business now and that they're sold – you know, when I was a kid, you could not go and buy – uh, like a Mets jersey or a, a New York Rangers jersey. I'm, I'm mentioning New York teams because I live in New York. Um, you couldn't go buy these jerseys because they weren't for sale. And the, the teams and the leagues had not figured out that fans would basically spend 200 or even $300 for a polyester shirt, which is what these things are. And, and it turns out that uh, fans will buy them. And so in the last 20 years or so, uh, that that has become a big revenue stream. And of course that can then drive design choices because um, prior to uniforms being available at retail, teams just wore what they wore based on what they thought looked good. 
but now uh, a big, I would say the biggest consideration of, of why teams wear what they wear is what sells. And uh, I think that has a much bigger influence on uniform design than anything I could ever say or do. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, who buys uniforms? Who buys jerseys? It's not like my father or probably your father or, or anybody over a certain age. The, the, like so many aspects of consumer culture, the, there's that younger age bracket that does most of the purchasing for this type of product, for a jersey or a cap. And so if you have only a certain subset of the fan base purchasing these things, and if the, purchase, if the purchasing decisions drive some of the design decisions, then you have that same smaller, younger subset of the fan base driving what the rest of the fan base ends up having to look at on the field. And that's something to consider as well. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how your, um, you know, maybe you could describe what your taste is in, in uniforms. Uh, I guess uh, some people would call me a traditionalist. I prefer to say I'm a classicist. I think classics are classics for a reason, not just in uniform design, but in most aspects of life. Uh, and so uh, when people ask me what my favorite designs are, I in baseball, I love the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, in football, I love the Green Bay Packers. Uh, and the Chicago Bears. Uh, in hockey, I like most of what are referred to as the original six teams. That's the six first teams in the NHL, which are the Rangers and the Canadians and Maple Leafs and um, uh, Blackhawks. I'm blanking on the others. Cause, oh, the Bruins. And the, yeah, and Red Wings. <laughs> and the Red Wings, yeah, yeah, all of which have fairly classic traditional designs. Yeah. Um, and... I'm not as big of a fan of either basketball or basketball uniforms per se, but for most basket, in most respects, I'm I favor traditional looking uh, basketball designs as well. And there are exceptions to all of these. I like some. There are modern teams uh, and modern looking teams whose uniforms I like. Um, but for the most part, I'm a classicist, and uh, that probably says something about the generation I grew up in. Uh, I'm 49 years old, which you know, in by some standards, makes me an old sports fan. Uh, I don't think of myself that way, but uh, I guess some might see it that way. And there, are, I, I have some of my younger readers who who will say to me, uh, "You don't like anything new. You only like the old stuff." And you know, to me, I I just like what I consider to be the good stuff. But yeah. uh, is there any that, newer uniforms that you feel have have gotten it right? Yeah, I, um, in hockey, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets have a, a pretty modern template that I think is awesome. Uh, I really like the way their uniforms look. Um, the, uh, in, in football, um, the original design for the Jacksonville Jaguars, which came out in, in the mid-90s, yeah. um, I thought had a chance to really become a modern classic. And unfortunately, they've messed with it, and, and now they, they wear what I would say is less of a uniform and more of a costume costume. Uh, but there are, yeah, there are examples of, of more modern uh, designs that I like. But really what we see uh, in many of the sports is a return to more classic designs. If you look at baseball, for example, Major League Baseball, uh, so many teams had tinkered with more modern designs and have then the pendulum has swung back and they've, they've gone back with basically updated versions of things they had worn decades earlier, like the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, a couple of seasons ago, were one of the worst-looking teams, uh, in my opinion, uh, on the field. And then uh, two or three seasons ago, they they brought back essentially uh, a slightly updated or tweaked version of what they had been wearing uh, in the 80s and 90s, and it looks great. I, I really like. I like 
what they had originally in the 80s and 90s, and I think the updated version is even better. And uh, it's sort of a back-to-the-future approach. The, the Houston Astros have done something similar, uh, and so have several other baseball teams. And baseball is really the most traditional uh, and the most classic-looking uh, of, of the sports in, in terms of uniform design. It tends to tinker um, less than other sports, um, you know, with... Um, modern looking things um yeah why, one, why do you think we've we've started to go back and update these classic or uh kind of more historical uniforms what is it about these uniforms that you think we like about them uh, well nostalgia is a is a powerful tool right uh not just in sports but in all sorts of areas but it's particularly powerful in sports because it, it bonds generations people have memories of watching a game with their father or their uncle or whatever it might be. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, and so I think nostalgia is powerful. And I think some of the older designs, frankly, are better than some of the newer designs that replace them. And, and teams realize that. And, uh, and, you know, the advent of what are called throwback games where teams will wear a uniform for the, from the past for just one game as a promotion um, has really been an interesting phenomenon. And it, it's, relatively new throwback games have been around for just a, a little over 20 years now and they're very successful uh they tend to sell well and uh everyone gets a kick out of them the announcers always like them because because broadcasters tend to be older right they're like middle-aged professionals and they they enjoy talking about these older uniforms and uh, i think that has opened teams up to the realization that these older designs can connect uh, generations of fans. Yeah. What are some of the other overarching trends happening right now in, in athletics and design for athletics? I think one of the biggest trends we see is something I, I briefly mentioned a few answers ago, and I said, uh, I think I said the Jacksonville Jaguars uh, design looks more like uh, uh, a costume than a uniform. And I think uh, specifically, it looks like a superhero costume, and I think that's what we see a lot of in sports now is a move toward what I call a superhero aesthetic. And and why not, in, in a way, because today's athletes are, in many ways, superheroic. They, you know, you look at these guys, and they are so incredibly muscular, and the, the athletic prowess that they have now, I, I don't think anyone would dispute that today's athletes are, are capable of much, much higher performance and incredible acrobatic type of performance than a generation or two ago. And in some ways they are like superheroes and they like to feel like superheroes. And some of these uniforms really dress them up like superheroes. And I, I think in football, especially, um, we see the increasing use of um, jerseys and pants of the same color. And, and when we, Normally, think of football. We think of one team wearing a colored jersey, usually with white pants or contrasting pants of, of some kind, like the Pittsburgh Steelers wear a black jersey with gold pants, or um, the Detroit Lions wear a blue jersey with silver pants. But we're seeing more and more teams wear um, a monochromatic uh, approach, you know. Where and the Seattle Seahawks are, who are in the Super Bowl, they're a perfect example of this. For their home games, they always wear a dark navy jersey and dark navy pants. And so that has more of an integrated look, almost like it's a one-piece unitard instead of a two-piece, you know, jersey and pants. And and I think that has a more costumey look and a more superhero costumey 
kind of look. And we're seeing more of that, especially in college football. You see this monochromatic look all the time in college football, less so in the pros, but some. And uh, so I think that's one thing, the superhero aesthetic. Uh, and I think another thing that influences uh, a similar approach is video gaming. Uh, so many people play uh, video games now, sports video games. And that also is sort of a superhero realm, right? It's sort of uh, comic books and video games are all sort of this fantasy realm. And I think sports is dabbling more with that sense of fantasy uh, more than it used to. And I, I think we see that reflected in a lot of these uniform designs. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems that teams have moved towards, uh, especially in college, that it's not just you know, a home and away uniform anymore. Now it's, there's this multitude of uniforms. And, and even in the case of uh, University of Oregon, uh, Nike uses them as, as sort of a showcase to show off all their latest technologies and um, kind of aesthetic thoughts. Uh, Oregon is a special case because they have a, a unique relationship with Nike because Nike CEO Phil Knight uh, is an Oregon alum. And so they sort of use Oregon as... Um, a guinea pig or a staging area for all sorts of, of things. And they, Oregon has kind of most favored nation status with Nike. Uh, but we do see it throughout the rest of the sports world that more and more teams have alternate uniforms. And they not only have more designs, but the pace at which these designs are introduced is much faster. Now, some of this is simply retailing. You know, every new jersey that you wear or have in your portfolio is a jersey you can sell. Um, but I think it also speaks to our sort of short attention span society, uh, for better or worse, Um, because it used to be that a team would keep its uniform for a generation, and then that got down to maybe a decade, and then maybe every five years, and then, you know, in in college sports now, we see teams changing uniforms every season, and in the case of a few schools like Oregon, every game. And I think there's this sense of of fans needing this jolt of stimulation, you know, that you can't let anything sit too long. And it's almost like needing it. it when I said uh, it relates to our short attention span society, I think we've all had that experience of quote unquote needing to check our email every couple of minutes or check Twitter or whatever, and, you know, to get that little jolt of stimulation or else, you know, life is boring or <laughs> right. that we get somehow acculturated or conditioned to need that little burst of outside uh, stimulation and uniforms and the cycle and pace at which uniforms are introduced is definitely part of that now or they're, or they're reflecting that now. Yeah. And it seems like the uniforms, you know, as whereas before, it might have been a historical thing to tie it back to the alumni. Now they're being used as as sort of a uh, a recruiting tool to actually attract you know students that might not have given a second thought about your school or you know it's definitely you see athletes now that will choose the te- the college they attend or you know I guess I haven't seen a pro athlete really uh, determine their choice on a team like this yet but um, the the uniforms do have an impact in, in that regard as well. You know you hear that and that's sort of a uh, like a parable that you hear from recruiters and coaches uh, at the college level. And I think uniforms get attention from potential recruits. 
I'm not aware of any uh, instances of, of a player saying he chose a particular school specifically for the uniform. And I, I think a uniform could be a tiebreaker. But what sure. little polling, what little polling I've seen or reporting I've seen on this topic, shows that uh, recruits actually care much more about the program and the coach and that type of thing than they care about the uniforms. I, I think the role of uniforms in recruiting is somewhat overblown. Also, you look at schools like Alabama and Auburn who wear fairly traditional uniforms and are top schools, I, top football schools. I don't see them having any difficulty in recruiting despite their rather conservative uniform approaches. So I, I think uh, the role of, of uniform in, in recruiting, I think it's a, a convenient way to sort of say, ah, the kids like it, you know, all this crazy stuff. I, I, you know, the coach says, I don't, I don't get any of this stuff, but the kids like it. It helps with recruiting. Right. right. I think that's a convenient, a convenient line. I don't really know how rooted in truth or fact it is. Yeah. Yeah. The other big thing I've I've been, you know, thinking about and just thinking about, uh, you know, uniforms from even like 30 years ago is that they used to be fairly average clothes like if you think of like a soccer uniform from like the 1980s it was basically a, a t-shirt and a pair of shorts and now it's it's like all these uniforms have like very uh designed materials that are like custom for that sport and it's, they're very much you know they have a sports sci- science slant to them you know like hockey sweaters used to literally be sweaters right know, right when the ever, played outdoors right and now it's they're you know really um engineered kind of you know poly blends that do certain things and they're tailored in a way that you know normal no normal human being would ever wear them and the stuff that we buy at like a sporting goods store is more designed for you know kind of like a fan type use there's no question that uh the development of performance fabrics uh which have uh, moisture management temperature management uh, ventilation, et cetera, all these have changed the uniform world considerably. And and I don't think there's any question that um, if you took a team, two identical teams, and dressed them in uh, current football or soccer uniforms and dressed them in the uniforms of, uh, and dressed, you know, one of them in the current uniforms and dressed the other team in uniforms from a generation ago, I think the current team would have a performance advantage. I do. Uh, I, I think these things matter. I, I think some of the incremental steps don't matter that much. We hear, you know, this new uniform is 7% lighter than the old one, 8% better moisture wicking. I, I don't know that those incremental steps make such a big difference, but the generational steps, the difference between something engineered today and something engineered 25 years ago, I think is a significant difference. And I do think it leads to performance uh, enhancement. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's been something that, you see, and you see these commercials uh, for Nike and Under Armour and some of the other companies where they show athletes in their in the company's design labs, you know, with all these electrodes attached to them and things like that. And uh, yeah, a lot of, of research and science has gone into this, and uh, it has definitely affected the product. And I do believe it has affected the performance on the field. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the Olympics because this is what's. Um... You know, it's it's the next big sporting event after the Super Bowl. This happens, you know, the Winter Olympics happen every four years, so to the summer. But now we've kind of spaced it out, so it's every two years we see an Olympics. And I can't remember one with this much intrigue leading up to it because you have Russia massively overspending. Uh, and I think the last figure I read was they are kind of outspending what China spent on a on their 2008 
Beijing Olympics, which happened in the summer, and the summer Olympics are generally longer than the winter ones, and I think they're outspending them four to one or some crazy astronomical number. Uh, you have the town of Sochi where the, the Olympics are going to be held. Uh, it's this summer resort city with palm trees, uh, and it's hosting a winter games, and it's a town that doesn't really have the space for a world event. And then finally, you've got Russia has new anti-gay laws, uh, and you know the mayor of Sochi is insisting that there's no gay people living in Sochi, which I don't think I've heard anyone say since uh, I think the former president of Iran said that once that there were no gay people living in his country. Uh, so th the whole thing kind of smells already, and I'm wondering, you know, what? How do you think this will translate? to the design and uniform side of things. Do you think we're going to see any sort of activist uh, need, you know, feeling athletes needing to uh, kind of speak out a little bit against this sort of thing? Well, there's already some, <clears throat> some talk about that because the, uh, the outfits that the German team will be wearing in the opening ceremonies have a rainbow design, which some people have interpreted as a, a pushback against uh, the anti-gay laws that you referred to because the rainbow pattern, of course, is a symbol of uh, the gay rights movement. And the designer of those designs said, uh, of the German outfit said, uh, no, that's not what it was intended uh, to be. But I think that's uh, regardless, uh, and <laughs> this is probably something a lot of designers can relate to. It doesn't often matter what your intent is. People are going to interpret things the, the way you, uh, they choose to interpret them. And I think uh, that design is going to be interpreted that way. And there's going to be a lot of talk about it during uh, the opening ceremonies. Yeah. Uh, Olympic outfits in general um, are an interesting design challenge. Because unlike a team uniform that, that's meant to become established over the course of a season or a number of seasons or, you know, for, for teams that aren't on that short attention span cycle, uh, you know, some teams do keep their uniforms for decades even, um, an Olympic uniform is only going to be seen at most for a couple of weeks and more often for a couple of days or maybe even a couple of hours or in some cases a couple of minutes. And so uh, often you get uh, a much more splashy uh, approach by the designers and the sportswear companies because there just isn't a lot of time to make your mark. And, uh, and, and of course, you've got all these other countries and, you know, none of these designs are established in the public mind like a team uniform is. And so there's all this visual competition. And so there's a lot of attempt by designers to come up with something that really stands out. And sometimes that's done successfully. A lot of times that results in things that are kind of loud and out there and maybe, you know, not so great. Um, but it, it often makes things at the very least somewhat interesting. Yeah. Is there anything uh, specifically interesting or unusual that we should be on the lookout for? Uh, every Olympics, it seems, there's one uh, outfit that uh, has a lot of buzz about it from a performance standpoint. Um, Back at the Sydney Olympics, uh, 12 years I think it was 12 years ago, um, an Australian runner uh, named Kathy Freeman wore something called a swift suit. Uh, she was a sprinter, uh, and everyone was talking about this Nike swift suit. It was a full body suit, and and every, everybody was thinking, why would you wear more clothing as a sprinter instead of just like a tank top and shorts? And she was wearing this full body suit, uh, and it it made her faster. It was one of these things uh, that they tested in the Nike lab, like we were talking about a minute ago, and uh, so there was a lot of talk about that. There have been other uh, swimming outfits, uh, like in the last Summer Olympics. There was a lot of talk about the uh, the Speedo Laser Racer swimming outfit, which uh, resulted in all sorts of new records being set. 
And the, the buzz this time around is a speed skating outfit that's going to be worn by the American speed skaters. It was designed by Under Armour, and it has somewhat counterintuitively a lot of little bumps on it. Uh, it's not sleek and smooth like most speed skating outfits are. Uh, it has these raised impressions on it, uh, and the idea is that it, uh, these impressions are supposed to work sort of like the dimples on a golf ball. And they've uh, tested it in the lab and all that stuff. And supposedly, uh, they think it can improve performance by some fraction of a second, which in the speed skating world is a lot. So um, there'll probably be a lot of chatter about that. Uh, that that's certainly one of the things I've been hearing a lot about uh, in the in the build up to these Winter Olympics. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again for uh, for coming on. I I. UniWatch is probably one of the first things I check every morning. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it's, that. It's a, I get up, I look at my iPhone, and I see what kind of you've you've found for us to look at today. And it's um, <laughs> it's such an interesting, you know, I don't know if you thought you were going to find this when you started, but, you know, I think by, by focusing on this one kind of narrow topic of sports uniforms, you've been able to use it as this lens to look at a whole host of other things, you know, design and consumerism and advertising and nostalgia and material science and branding and politics. And uh, it's just a really interesting way to kind of think about all that stuff through this one narrow lens. So uh, uh, I, I'm glad you see it that way. I see it that way, too. UniWatch has taught me so much, and it's a very satisfying project in that regard. I learn stuff from it all the time. And that's, you know, how lucky am I to have a job where I get to learn cool things uh, that make me think more, and, and then I get to funnel those thoughts back into my work, and uh, it, it, I feel really fortunate, and so I, I thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you again for coming on, and uh, thanks. Well, that's our show. I want to thank Paul for being our guest today. In case you were looking for some design-related news from the Super Bowl last night, it turns out that the NFL uses confetti shaped like the Lombardi Trophy during its award presentation. I would have never caught that detail without reading UniWatch this morning, which leads me to my next point. You should be following Paul's UniWatch blog. Even if you're not into sports, there are so many interesting details about the aesthetics of sports culture that I'm sure you will learn something to bring back into your own work. Go check it out at uniwatch.com. That's uni-w-a-t-c-h.com. Make sure you remember the dash between uni and watch. You can subscribe to After School on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store on your computer or the podcast app on your mobile device and search for Core 77 or After School. And when you're there, if you like what you're hearing, give us a nice review so other people can find us as well. Also on Core 77, we include show notes that link you to all of the stuff you heard us talking about with Paul. You can follow me and the After School podcast on Twitter at After School, and you can follow Core 77 on Twitter at Core 77. After School's theme song is Introducing Today by Disco Lobos. I'm Don Lehman. Talk to you soon.